Novichok strikes again and reopens recent wounds with the Russians. World Cup politics, the fans don't care. Has the Defence Secretary won a new deal for British forces? If we are going to do more, we require to raise more money. And Trump's on his way. Look out, Mrs May, the Queen and NATO non-payers. Novichok, the Russian nerve agent, is in the news again. A man and a woman are in Salisbury Hospital being treated for life-threatening exposure to the chemical. The government's immediate reaction is that they were contaminated by Novichok that was never found after the attack on Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in March. But the counter-terrorism agencies are reviewing all the evidence and reports on the March attack, including assessments on laboratories and personnel at Porton Down, where British scientists reduced reproduced Novichok to find antidotes. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Christopher, where are we with this? Okay, this is all happened in the last uh, past 48 hours. Two people, man and a woman, as far as we know, no connection with uh, uh, Sergei uh, Skripal, uh, who was attacked in, in, in March, uh, in hospital in a critical condition. What is interesting about this is where did this Novichok come from? Uh, a Novichok which was used in March and according to the reports then has a limited life in other words you know it, it fades it goes out of use so or, does or it not have a limited well, life maybe it doesn't have a limited life people at Port and Down can actually tell you that um, it's also uh, important to find where else this might be uh, it's in Amesbury where this took place not not Salisbury where the other uh, condition took place but that doesn't mean a thing it means that people who can go to you know, 20 minutes and you're, you're, you're in Salisbury. So it doesn't actually matter what has actually happened. What does matter is the idea that's been put around this morning that the, uh, that the security agencies are checking out stuff that they checked before. They're having a look at all the reports, all the reports that came in from all the different agencies, mainly security, but police as well, uh, fire brigades, public uh, re reports, and also going through some of the details they have from Porton Down itself because there's always the possibility and it's only a vague possibility at the moment there could be something which was, which was completely overlooked and that's the possibility that there is somebody here that's actually used Novichok and that somebody could have been and there are about two or three names which they, they would recheck been at Porton Down and Porton Down is where the, the British government actually does work on things like Novichok. Well, let's bring in Dr Mark Galliotti, a senior fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague. Good to speak to you today, Mark. When the original Novichok story broke in March, Mr Putin said it wasn't us. Mrs May said it was. This week's incident does seem like it's going to reopen the whole argument. Yeah, absolutely. And very much it's going to actually play into the Russian narrative, which is that, oh, this is actually all part of a provocation to, to blacken Russia's name because of the very fact it hits during the World Cup, um, a tournament in which the Russians are desperately hoping to recover a certain amount of their international legitimacy and soft power. So in, in this respect, it, it's bad timing for, for Russia, precisely because it might derail that process. But on the other hand, it's also bad timing for London, because it gives Russia and those people who'd rather believe Moscow than London um, a reason to suggest that it's all some terrible provocation. 
So what do you think will happen? Well, you, you mentioned the World Cup and how it's a, a moment perhaps for Russia to try and uh, wipe the slate clean and reinvent itself. Do you think it will be affected by this, seriously? Well, in a way, it, it's very hard to know quite how it plays out. We, we should realise that no one really was expecting the level of international response that took place to, to the Skripal attack in the first place. Um, that said, though, the World Cup is a truly global phenomenon, um, and precisely because of the unexpected success of the England team, um, it's not as though we, we're likely to see some some grand uh, walkout by 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 the British, um, at least not not until after the next match. Um, so that I think, really, realistically speaking, this is part of the kind of the long tail of the Skripal attack, most likely, that isn't likely to lead to any kind of new developments, um, but just simply a reminder at a very inconvenient moment for Putin of what happened before. Christopher Lee, is the World Cup too big for any political system to manipulate? Well, certainly as it stands at the moment, the World Cup probably has a bigger public image than past World Cups or many past World Cups uh, is a success story. There's no indication, for example, for people who are viewing around the world, the hundreds of millions of people, that it's been organised uh, by uh, Mr Putin, for example, or his public public relations people, because, you know, this is the World Cup of, of penalty shootouts um, and it's, it's, it's a World Cup of Colombia sort of trying everything they could do to beat England, etc. I tell you, it's an interesting one. Just supposing, against all the odds, England got into the final, would Mr Putin invite Mrs May to and go? And would she sit go? Along, and would she go? No way can she go at the moment, but I just, I just wonder. Or member of the royal family? Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> Mark Galliotti, you've been writing uh, recently about the disgraced former FIFA president, Seb Blatter, in Moscow, but President Putin keeping that meeting with him private. And you asked the question, is he really more toxic than President Assad, more dangerous than the Libyan warlord, Khalifa Haftar, more laughable than Gerard Depardieu? What, what do you see in this? Well, again, I think it, it reflects what uh, the Russians were trying to get out, out of the World Cup, um, which, after all, is, is an extremely expensive sort of vanity competition for, for Putin. Um, and in part, I mean, this was just simply to show that they could be the centre of, of the world, at least for a few days. But it was at the same time, again, it, it was an attempt to, to restore an international reputation which had been very badly damaged. I mean, they, they had had some success at, in the Sochi Winter Olympics and then they threw it all away by invading Crimea almost immediately afterwards. So th this was once again, it was an attempt to try and bring Russia to an extent back into the fold. They, not, not to become our, our cuddly friends, but at least not to be regarded as a source of all Bond villain-esque evil. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, I think up to now, they have been very keen in almost cultivating this perspective as the sort of the, the, the opposite pole to the West. So anyone who was against the West, they would like. Now, I think they, they started to try and keep a, keep a lower profile to look a little bit more respectable, which is one of the reasons why the, the Set Blatter meeting um, was, was kept very much a confidential one. They didn't even have a photo op um, of, of Putin with the man who, after all, had been essential in, in getting the World Cup to come to, to Russia. Mm. Um, but again, we may well see that this current Novichok incident derails all those attempts to get more respectability for Russia. OK, after after the Winter Olympics, then you have Crimea and everybody said, oh, that's terrible. But it was happening anyway, and the, and the image of whatever uh, Russia or Mr Putin was, 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 was simply not going to go away. Um, the important thing is, on day two, 
after the Olympics, after the uh, the World Cup, you know, it's back to business, isn't it? I mean, the, the Russians are still a, a great influence, mm. for example, in Syria, which gets up the frock of quite a few people on President Trump's staff, but he will still meet him on the 16th in, in Helsinki. So, yeah, on that note, that meeting on the 16th, uh, Trump, Putin, they have a lot in common. They both get criticised by the rest of the world, but both succeed in their ambitions. Example, Trump, North Korea, Putin and Syria. Do you see that the case, Mark Galliotti? Yeah, except that we've got to realise there's one massive difference between the two um, in that Trump has all the resources of the United States behind him. I mean, Trump in some ways can be as incompetent as you like, and in many ways he is. <laughs> but the point is the, the gravitational force of the United States, the, the single global superpower is, is such that he can still get his way. Putin, on the other hand, is, is a much sharper, shrewder, smarter, nastier politician who in some ways is playing a much, much weaker hand, but has to play it that much better. So anyway, this is, this is the difference. Trump has, has all, everything going his way and therefore can, in, in, he, in a way, he can't lose. Putin has to keep winning, but he has to do so by being smarter and shrewder. Dr. Mark Galliotti, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. Sit with Still to come, Trump's back on the road, tea with Mrs May and buns with a queen, and the danger of loneliness in the armed forces community. It's July, the month everyone was led to believe that the Defence Secretary's modernising defence programme would be made public. But so far, all we've had is newspaper reports claiming the Prime Minister has faced threats of rebellions or resignations over defence and that she had a showdown with the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, in Downing Street. Well, one backbench Conservative MP is calling for a calm debate. Johnny Mercer, a former army officer who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, says the discussion around defence spending has become infantilised in recent weeks. I think we need to be more honest uh, about what we can and can't do, how you know the effects of that dishonesty over the years have had on uh, particularly our junior ranks um, and how you know we need to be much more embracing of change and looking forward to a sort of positive vision that I hope is going to come out of the modernising defence programme. Well, Johnny Mercer was speaking at the Royal United Services Institute think tank in London. Afterwards, he spoke to Forces News. What I'm trying to do is engender an environment where they are taken seriously and the government understands that it needs to, if it wants to have a world-class military, it is going to have to pay for it. Yes, be absolutely resilient on reform uh, and things like that, but at the same time, you are going to have to pay for it if you want a world-class military, and we need to have mature discussions around that. And he said the tone of the debate needs to change. Honestly, with the British people, I think uh, people understand that if we are going to do more, we require to raise more money. I think honesty within the government about what we're asking our people to do um, and honesty within the military as well around what we can achieve. You know, I come from that sort of generation who were perhaps overcommitted and under-resourced, I think you could argue. And, uh, you know, that had a very painful effect on a, on a number of us. And we need to, you know, move away from that to a more sustainable model so that that offer that we offer our servicemen and women in exchange for military service in this country um, gets better and not worse as it currently is. Christopher Lee, what do you make of his, make of his arguments? OK, I think the most important bit is, is, was in the, his, first, uh, his first answer when he said, we've got to get in our heads what we can and cannot do uh, because that affects especially the junior ranks. Now, what we're saying is that we, you know, we can march up and down on Horse Guards Parade and we're lot smashing, look great. Uh, what about the commitments we have when we have to go to places like 
uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, etc., and we're under-resourced, etc. He is basically saying what we think Mrs. May is saying at the moment. Somebody explain to me why we need to be number one in the world when we can do important jobs perfectly well if we're number two. Um, the second part of it is follows on for this, this idea of being world-class. You can, you've still got to be world-class at what you do, but you don't have to do the huge and uh, the huge jobs. You leave that to coalitions and you leave it to the United States or whatever. The other thing, which is the, I know it's the doubtful part right at the end, he says, we've got to be honest with people. We've got to say, to, because people say, yes, okay, we'll have all this equipment, we'll ha but you've got to pay for it. And you've got to pay quite a lot of money. You've really got to pay probably, not the 2% that people talk about in, in NATO terms, you've got to pay perhaps about 4% of your GDP. But it's this thing about the people. The people do not know. Go out in the street and ask somebody how much we spend on defence. How much? What does two percent mean? So what have he, we got? They don't know. So when he says you've got to be honest with people, is that a bit of a moot argument then? No, it's not. It's the fact that you haven't got to convince the people. I don't think you've got to convince the public about how much you spend on defence. It's not because the public says spend what you like, guys. We don't mind. Maybe he's maybe he's hinting it's the at the fact, fact that it's not the it's not the the job of the Secretary of State is to get among. The, the financial secretary to the treasury, starting with her, then go to the chancellor, then go to the prime minister and say, look, here is in this box all your commitments that you've asked us to guarantee. This is what we need to do that. If he then says to them, you've got to pay for that, this mm. is what it would cost. That's the argument. It's got nothing to talk to the public. The public have never voted on defence. So let's put this in the context with the NATO meeting, the Trump meeting. Are, are we really at a crossroads in British defence, do you think? I think we are. I think we're at a crossroads of deciding where we go from here. You can't actually say it too loudly at a NATO meeting. What Mrs. Mrs. May will do when she goes to that meeting, and in fact just before it, because she's also probably got to speak to Parliament and the Defence Secretary's got to speak to Parliament, is, is very simply this. We have probably... Or, or not probably, we have the finestly tuned and the most advanced defence system in the whole of Europe. Nobody, including the Russians, nobody gets close to what the capability of how you use this. This is how we're going to improve it over the next five years. She'll do that. This is how we're actually doing this and what will need that improvement, like the, the aircraft carriers, etc. Et um, this is how we're going to spend money. We may spend more than 2%, but it won't be just like announced in November in the Chancellor's budget. It will be maybe over a period of five, ten years. This is what she's got to prove. The United Kingdom spends and does better than almost every country in Europe, certainly. And the other thing is, at the moment, that a lot of people in Europe are trying to get people uh, to support them with this idea. You get the United Kingdom out of the defence of Europe because they should, that's when you tie it in with the Brexit debate. Well, Britain's defence spending has not only been under scrutiny here, but also in the United States, seemingly on a daily basis. America's Defence Secretary James Mattis wrote to Gavin Williamson this week, warning him that Britain's military power is at risk of erosion. Well, let's talk to Michael Stathis, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah. Hello, Michael. America has always said European countries don't pay enough for defence. This is the first president who we believe could take dramatic action to change that. Well, he certainly has been saying since the beginning of his presidency and during the uh, election that he is not happy 
with uh, the payment balance uh, in uh, NATO. But to be perfectly frank, this is nothing new. Uh, this is the way it's, uh, uh, it, it's always been, but more particularly, as we've spoken about before, uh, prior to uh, this president, uh, agreements have been made, especially for the um, well, uh, poorer countries in, in uh, the European Union, uh, to at least for the near future pay what they can and with the proviso that uh, they would uh, attempt to, uh, uh, to, to catch up. Uh, what Trump is doing right now uh, is not doing NATO any favors. It's not doing the United States any favors. The only thing it's uh, 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 doing is putting a smile on uh, 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 Putin's face. Trump telling NATO is not doing enough. Is that partly getting America ready for President Trump's announcement that he's going to pull out chunks of his forces from continental Europe, for, from Germany, for example? Well, I think he's talking about that. He's always talked. He's uh, he also talked about that with Kim Jong Un um, uh, in their meeting uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, uh, on the one hand, he keeps talking about how he wants to invest more money in the American mil military and build it up. On the other hand, he talks about ways that uh, you know he can save money, and he has this idea that uh, pulling troops out of South Korea, at Japan. Germany will uh, somehow uh, uh, help his budget and provide additional security for the United States. But this has not been the uh, the template uh, since 1945. And I don't know, uh, seriously, I don't know if he's going to be able to sell a Republican Congress uh, on this notion in the long run. Mm, so how would you judge his military thinking? Uh, well, uh, uh, I, I might be sticking my neck out a little bit, but I'm feeling a little revolutionary. Hmm. Yesterday was the 4th of July. Um, I think that uh, the extent of his military thinking uh, is within the confines of the 1971 film uh, Patton. And um, uh, not only outdated, but without uh, any sense of true reality. So what do Americans uh, make of his extreme actions and his statements and even his threats? Do they, are they worried like the rest of the world at times? Yes. Uh, there was an uh, impromptu photograph taken of uh, the president giving a, uh, a, a, a press briefing uh, last week. And in the background, uh, there was a picture of a scurrying uh, Steve Miller. Uh, but the thing that was disturbing about that picture was that he was carrying uh, the football. Uh, now, the football is a leather satchel which contains all of the nuclear codes uh, for the President of the United States. The idea that someone like Steve Miller or John Bolton um, or half a dozen other people in this administration uh, somehow have their hand on those nuclear codes um, is absolutely mm. frightening. So he's coming to the UK next week. What do you think he's going to do? What impact do you think he's going to make? <laughs> Depends <laughs> on whether he sees that balloon or not. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about that <laughs> earlier, yes. This big balloon that's being given a go-ahead, making fun of him, that's going to float over London, uh, we're told. Well, I, I don't think he really... Uh, in his mind, uh, he's popular everywhere. And I think he's going to be absolutely shocked... Uh, when he uh, comes to the UK and um, uh, notes that he's uh, not that popular there. I don't, I, uh, listen, I don't think the people in the UK, London, wherever, 
will even know about him and where he is. You know, you can, I mean, when the, chi- the head of China came and he was going to be sort of harangued by the population, you'd protect they him, didn't wouldn't meet you? him. You'd protect him, wouldn't you? Keep him away from the naysayers. Yeah. Do you think that's going to happen? Uh, if possible. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure it will, but it's certainly going to be interesting. But if you were planning it, you would try and do that, wouldn't you? Uh, they will try, but uh, uh, we were in the UK just, uh, you know, uh, through most of May, and uh, 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 so you know, we hear from Portsmouth. Portsmouth. He is not a popular figure down there, <laughs> no. so I don't know where he could go that uh, uh, you know he would uh, glean any uh, uh, any popularity. And then it gets worse going to the NATO meeting, uh, where he has snubbed one way or another, uh, almost. Uh, um, uh, you know, every uh, state leader or uh, foreign minister uh, uh, in NATO. He's and, going to go uh, to that again, NATO meeting and he's going to threaten to pull out. Do you think this? Or do he's you think, going to yeah. say, we don't need it anymore. And um, uh, that, again, uh, is going to make Putin very happy, but it's not going to sell well in the United States. Uh, NATO has always been, uh, to be very, 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 very blunt, NATO has always been the tripwire. Uh, for American security uh, uh, concerning uh, Russia. Uh, why would you change that? Uh, what in heaven's name would uh, seize an individual uh, to change uh, something that was designed uh, primarily for the safety of the United States, secondarily the safety of Europe? So whatever he says about NATO then next week, do you think it will matter fundamentally because you think it will be preserved? Um, I think it's going to be more or less talk, uh, bluster and substance. Which, um, which actually could be quite effective because it could increase people spending, countries spending on defence. No, Christopher's shaking his head. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> God, listen, I'll tell you something. Um, when, 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 uh, when President Trump gets up and says, hey, listen, uh, you're not spending enough, people like the British, the French and the Germans who do spend a lot of money... But there are more countries... They, turn, they haven't more, got any money. But there are more countries. The, the number of countries who are contri- spending at least 2% of their GDP on defence has increased, hasn't it? Uh, no. It has? No, not in practice. It hasn't. It so hasn't. what you're saying, they've, they've, they've played with the figures. Well, of course you play with the figures, but the point <laughs> is the, you know, the 20... 20 Michael, the, come, help me out here. With 29, <laughs> there are 29 countries in NATO. Maximum five meet the, t- the 2%. Out of those... Well, the Secretary General said wait, more wait, than five recently. I don't mind what he said. He's, <laughs> is, this is what I'm telling you. And not only you're do, right, Christopher. No, wait a minute. Jens Stolberg is wrong. Not only, only five meet it... Only three of them, including the United States and including uh, the United Kingdom, only three of them make a practical use of the money that you can say, yes, that is a new capability. You don't get that in the other countries where you, the most you get is the maintenance of what you've already got. Mm. Professor Michael Stathis, before you go, um, how interested are you going to be in this visit uh, by Donald Trump next week to the UK? Now, excuse me, say that again. How interested are you going to be in this visit next week to the UK? Oh, oh, for heaven's sakes, very, very much. Um, Personally, I'm finished teaching for the summer, so I'm just going to sit back. Oh, come along uh, too, then. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reason uh, to watch the the, the World Cup, is there? I was going to say, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I can't see uh, any games on the World Cup, I'll watch, uh, uh, you know, the other games that are being played. And uh, 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 believe me, we are sitting on pins and needles. 
waiting to see what happens at the NATO meeting and his meetings with uh, with, with with Putin. But um, uh, uh, of course, for me, the meeting in the UK, uh, the visits in mm. the UK, is so vitally important. As as uh, uh, our listeners. You know, have known for uh, oh my gosh, now decades. Uh, uh, I am. Uh, I have always been a champion, an American champion of the special relationship, oh. and I uh, I see it's uh, teetering a little bit, but mm. I think it's strong enough that even with Trump, right. uh, you know, it's 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 going to survive. All right, Professor Michael Stath, it's good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. Now, members of the armed forces community are more likely to feel lonely or socially isolated than the rest of the population. That's according to innovative research by the Royal British Legion, who held a symposium in London to discuss their findings. Ali Gibson was there. Mike and Linda Kiff address a room full of charity staff, the government and veterans. Here to share their story of how loneliness and social isolation crept in once Mike was medically discharged from the army after a worsening shoulder injury. It is probably the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. I wasn't able to do the things I was wanting to do, wasn't interacting with my friends. It's terrifying. There's no easy way about trying to help him and still be a mother and a wife. Now, the Royal British Legion are hoping to address these issues. At a symposium in their London headquarters, they're discussing their latest research. 5,000 people in the armed forces community were surveyed, including those serving, their families and veterans. Charles Byrne is the Director General of the Royal British Legion and Meg Stapleton is the Policy Officer. There are some particular triggers that we find for those in the armed forces community. The regular disruption from deployment, so frequently moving, uh, with that family separation. And then typically, and um, particularly, the transition out of service life into uh, civilian life, and the loss of comradeship and the team that you've known for so long. One in four said that they feel lonely always or often, and one in four also said that they feel socially isolated. When you compare that to the general population, it is quite high, but we have to caveat it a bit that our survey respondents was um, slightly older. Also addressing the audience, the MOD's Minister for Defence, People and Veterans, MP Tobias Alwood. Defence budget and defence is not just about the equipment, that takes the headlines, it's not just about the training and the operations, it's about the people. Recent research has suggested that feeling lonely and isolated can be extremely damaging to health, so the government say they want to do more. I think all of us just need to be less reserved about celebrating the fact that we have the most professional armed force in the world and not forgetting that we recruit from society. If we want the best to continue to come forward, we need to, uh, they need to know that they are continually to be appreciated, not just while they serve, but after they've served as well. Leading on from this research into the armed forces community, the RBL have made several recommendations for the government, including that questions about loneliness should be included on things like the Armed Forces Continuous Attitude Survey. The MOD should commission its own research into what causes loneliness in the armed forces community. And that the MOD should consider loneliness and social isolation when they make plans for the future accommodation model, which will decide where personnel live in the future. Ali Gibson, Forces News, London. Christopher, uh, the Army's latest recruitment slogan is, this is belonging. It is. I tell you, the, the, the bit that Tobias Elwood was talking about there, when he was saying, for example, it's important that we sort of get at the families. Sometimes this, this terrible, terrible distance there is 
between a person and himself in the role that he has or she has in the services. And it is it is part of stretching, it is part of not knowing what you're expected to do, and more and more it's a, it's part of it being an unusual thing for you to go into the services. There isn't a service generation within the family, etc. Mm. And these bring in all sorts of difficulties with, with loneliness. You get this especially with only children, and only children join the services in a, in a very big way because that's where they go. Yep. To, to seek it in the in, in in the first place, but that is the important thing. It is going outside of the service organisation to combat, in this case, five thousand uh, examples of loneliness. Is to combat uh, loneliness. Go outside of the services and stick to the families. It's the families that will know what the person is really like, rather than the person admires them when they're standing on the parade ground with the bearskin. Christopher, um, this time next week, what do you think will be the headlines? Put your money where your mouth is. Oh, I tell you, it's going to be Putin. No, not Putin. What's his name? Trump. Trump takes tea with the Queen at Windsor. If he hadn't have got tea with the Queen at Windsor, it would have been a snub. And that is all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode by subscribing to this show as a podcast. I'm Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.